Good morning. Pastor Kevin's going to be preaching in a little bit out of um, Exodus 19. That's on page 73 uh, in your Bibles if you want to follow along. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out for, from Ephraim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be sorted or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they go up to the mountain. After Moses had gone down to the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a, a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of the Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people, so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it as apart as holy. The Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Thank you, Suzanne. So a couple of weeks ago, the New England Patriots beat the Miami Dolphins. I know you're all sick of it. My family's sick of it. Everybody's sick of it. 43 to nothing. They beat the Dolphins 43 to nothing. Now, usually when a team gets up by that many points or well before that, they will usually take their starting quarterback out of the game. 
to make sure that he doesn't get injured unnecessarily. And you would think that would especially be the case with the Patriots. Brady's 42 years old. He gets injured. He's done, not for the season, but for the rest of his life. So you think that they would take him out. Tom Brady did not come out of that game against the Miami Dolphins. Why? Well, I think there are a number of reasons for that. But one of the reasons we find the answer to in this passage. Today we are continuing in our series on the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is a book in the Bible which tells the story of the people of Israel at a particular time in their history. It was a difficult time in their history. It was a troubling time in their history. It was a time in which they were in slavery. They'd been enslaved in Egypt for several hundred years. And it's a story about how God is a God of deliverance. God comes and he rescues them. He delivers them out of Egypt. He gives them an exodus. That's why the name of the book is Exodus. And what God wants them to realize, and he uses this particular historical situation to drive this home, he wants them to see that that is at the very core of who he is. He is a God of deliverance. He wants, when you think of God, who is God, the first thing that God wants you to think of is that he is a God of deliverance. He is a God who comes to rescue those who are in need, those who are in trouble. Now, so we've seen that God is a God who delivers, but what begins to emerge in this passage here is something very simple. It, it, it's seen in one verse, and it's, it's very subtle, but it's incredibly profound. What we're going to see here is that it's not just about being delivered from something. It's about being delivered to something. That what God does when he brings deliverance is he doesn't just deliver us from something. He delivers us to something. He does deliver us from something, right? And that's so central. God is a God who wants to deliver us from whatever challenges we're facing. He's a God who delivers us, longs to deliver us from abusive relationships. He is a God who longs to deliver us from health challenges that we are facing. He is a God who longs to deliver us from addiction and idolatry, which go hand in hand. When we love something more than God, we love something. We look to it to be our source of life. But in looking to it rather than God, it actually destroys us. God longs to deliver us from that. God longs to deliver us from whatever challenges we might be facing. God longs to deliver us from our sin. But he doesn't just long to deliver us from something. He longs to deliver us to something. And here's what we discover. God longs to deliver us to his presence. God longs to deliver us into his presence. Look at this in, in, in verses 3 and 4. So the Israelites have come out of Egypt. They've come through the Red Sea. God has given them deliverance, victory over the Egyptian army. They've come out. Now they're walking through the desert, and they come to this mountain, Mount Sinai. And here's what it says in verse 3. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Those two words there, brought you 
to myself. Didn't just bring you out of Egypt. Didn't just deliver you from what you were dealing with. He delivered them to himself. God doesn't just long to deliver us from something. He longs to deliver us to something. What we see in this is just a very profound way of seeing the world. This ought to change the way that we see the world. You see, everybody has a way of seeing the world. It's sort of the, the big picture, right? So the, let's put it this way. The naturalist, the way that they see the world is that basically the world is just life, is basically a struggle between life and death. That's how the naturalist sees things. That every day, you're, you're either drifting towards life, maybe you get a new job, you're able to pay the bills, able to feed your family, so, so you're moving towards life, or, or maybe you just got fired. And so now you're not sure if you're able to afford health insurance, and so now you just might die, right? So, so you're either moving towards life, or you're moving towards death. That's the way the naturalist sees the world. The moralist sees the world in a different fashion. The moralist sees the world through a lens of right and wrong, that basically every day when you wake up, it's this struggle, right? It's this struggle to either do what is right or to do what is wrong. You, you wake up, uh, you wake up 5.30 in the morning. Well, if you're a moralist, you probably get up at 4 in the morning, right? You get up at 4 in the morning, and, and, and you, it, from then until when you go to bed at night, it's just this basic struggle. Sometimes you do what's right, and sometimes you do what's wrong, and each day you hope to do more right than you do wrong. That's how the moralist sees the world. But what we see in this passage is a profoundly different way of looking at the world, which, which doesn't exclude those other ways of looking at the world. The Christian worldview does not exclude the idea of seeing life in terms of life and death, and certainly not excluding the concept of right and wrong. They fit in to the Christian worldview, but there is a more fundamental way in which Christians are able to see the world. And here's what it is. Every day when you get up in the morning, you are either being pulled away or towards the presence of God. That's the lens through which Christians evaluate everything. And those other ways of seeing it, they fit in, but that's not the fundamental category. That's not the fundamental set of glasses that we use to evaluate our world. No, no. The way we see it is that every day when you get up in the morning and you get out of bed, between then and when you go to sleep at night, you're being either pulled towards the presence of God or you're being pulled away from the presence of God. And this lens, this way of seeing the world is really what's unpacked in the next 20 chapters of the book of Exodus. That's what the next 20 chapters of the book of Exodus is about. It's about the presence of God. It's about the centrality of God coming to dwell in our midst and that becoming the fundamental reality, the fundamental way in which we see the world. Now, Then what emerges in this passage after we come to this realization is that immediately we discover that there is a problem. There is a problem with this idea that we are uh, here to be delivered into the presence of God. And here's what the problem is. Being in the presence of God isn't exactly safe. Being in the presence of God is not exactly safe. Just last night, I was really excited. I, my kids are at this age now where 
I started, I sat down with them. They, they, they sat, or I sat down as they were lying in bed, and I sat down. I'd been, been prepping them for this, getting them really stoked about this, about this book I was going to read to them. They're really all, what is this book? What are you going to read? Us? Sit down, and I started to read to them, the, read the first chapter of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I'm so excited about them beginning to be able to enter into this amazing world that C.S. Lewis creates. And of course, in that world, in the story, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, uh, these four children are in this magical land in Narnia, and they're kind of, kind of getting a feel for it. And of course, they discover there's a struggle going on between good and evil. And there's this conversation that Lucy has with Mr. Beaver, and Mr. Beaver is telling her about Aslan. The king, the king who's going to come and, and make things right, make things new. And so Mr. Beaver's telling her about this king, Aslan, and, and as he's telling her about it, he tells her that, she, that Aslan is a lion. And um, Lucy's a little bit kind of confused uh, by this. Uh, she, she ends up saying, uh, really, I, you know, I thought that he would have been a, a man. You know, I'm a little bit nervous uh, about being around this lion. And then she says, I mean, is he quite safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? You see, Lewis captures what we find here in this passage, that the presence of God isn't exactly safe. Now, why isn't it safe? And here's why. What we discover here, what emerges in this passage is this, there is a gap between us and God. There is a gap between us and God. In fact, that's what the word holy is really getting at. We hear this word holy, and the word holy emerges here in verse 23, Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai uh, because you yourself warned us put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. That word holy, the Hebrew word kadesh, what it means is to set apart. For something to be holy is, is that it's set apart. There's a gap between whatever is holy and whatever is not. And so what emerges in the narrative of Scripture is that there is this gap between us and God. And what we discover is that this gap is something that has emerged over time. Uh, what, what, what's interesting, actually, is that the word holy is not used to describe God in the book of Genesis. You don't find it there. You don't find the word holy being used to describe God until Exodus, until Moses has his first encounter with God in the burning bush. The only time the word holy even emerges in the book of Genesis is in the very first chapter, and it's when God says that the Sabbath day is to be holy. It is to be set apart. That's the only time that it's used. It's not used again, and it certainly isn't used to describe God. That isn't a fundamental quality of the God that emerges in, the, in Genesis, certainly not to the extent that we find in Exodus. And, 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 you know, really, why is it? Well, it seems essentially what has happened here is that this gap has emerged, right? If you look at it, kind of look at it this way, uh, uh, back, in, um, back in Genesis 1, when God creates everything, we see that God is not described as a fire. He's described, described as, as, as a man walking in a garden. There's Adam and Eve walking in the garden with God. And then you fast forward to Exodus, and now it's a consuming fire with lightning and thunder and all this. Right? Well, what, what seems to have happened is that, well, see, in, 
in, in the beginning, God wasn't so much set apart. They were in harmony. They were with one another. Heaven and earth were together. But then what happened is that Adam and Eve turned away from God. They turned away from him, and then this gap began to emerge. Not all that different than if you're in a relationship with something and something goes south, you know, and you start to go your separate ways, and then over time, 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 35 years later, you're just two completely different people. There's this gap that has emerged. That's essentially what's going on here. There's this gap that has emerged so that God, the best way of describing him, the best way of him revealing himself is not so much as a man walking in the garden, but as a fire. You know, another way of putting this is that somewhat of an odd illustration, but There's a sense in which a good analogy for what this is like is like if you are in a hot tub, right? So suppose you're in a hot tub. Anybody hot tub? Anybody like the hot tub? Yep, got a few. Okay. So you're in the hot tub, and and that that heat, it's just, oh, it's so nice, right? And it it just uh, feels so good, and it loosens up your muscles, and you just love it. It's a little piece of heaven, really. It's like heaven and earth coming together in that hot tub. But then think about this. What happens if you get out of the hot tub? And then you're out of it. The longer you're out of it, so you're out of it for 15 minutes, an hour, a couple of hours, maybe a day, and then you try to come back in. What You can't just jump right back in, right? There's a, there's a gap between your temperature and the temperature of the hot tub. You can't, now it's, it hurts to get back in. That thing that was so amazing and so wonderful now actually seems to burn you when you touch it. There's a sense in which you can say the story of the of the Bible from Genesis to Exodus is that Adam and Eve got out of the hot tub and the Israelites are trying to get right back in, but they've been out for a while. And so now there is this gap between them. Now in verse 5, God prepares a way for them to ease their way back in, right? We see this here, verse 5. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Almost this indication, okay, if you obey me, if you do what I say, in other words, if you act in accordance with my nature, then then you can ease your way back into my presence. And so then then he also issues these commands, these uh, religious commands, right? So when we look at the commands of God, really, you have these commands that talk about how we should act and how we should behave, which you could, in a sense, call moral commands. So we've got those, and that is what we begin to discover beginning in, in, in chapter 20. We get the Ten Commandments, and then there's a whole series of laws that come after that. And so we've got these laws that dictate how we should live life. And of course, in the end, basically what those laws are all about is loving your neighbor, caring for your neighbor. So you've got those laws, and then you've got these religious laws, and these religious laws are there to help to sort of symbolize the purity that God wants us then to actually live out, right? So we've got the ceremonial washing. There's, there's wash, a lot of washing in the, uh, in the Old Testament sort of religious rituals. And it's to symbolize the purity of what it looks like when somebody really does love their neighbor. And it's there to remind them of what it is, the way in which they are to live their lives. So he sort of sets out these commands about, well, this is how you live. And if you live this way, right, then you can ease your way back into my presence. Now, here's the thing. In our society, we don't really like this idea of a holy God. 
We don't like this idea that there is a gap between us and God. We don't like this idea that there is a God of judgment, which is really what we're talking about here, right? I mean, you go up the mountain and poof. I mean, that's, that's, look, that's judgment. That's what that is. And we, we don't like that idea of judgment, right? It, it makes us very uncomfortable. And, and so we, we don't like this idea of, of religion. Religion then sort of becomes this sort of this life of constantly trying to measure up, right? I mean, who wants to live this life where you just, oh my gosh, I'm not quite there yet. I'm not quite good enough. I'm not quite doing what I need to do to be able to get myself into the presence of God. Why would anybody want to live that life? And actually, this perspective, I mean, there's a lot of good reason why somebody might think that. I mean, all you've got to do, actually, is just look at what happens to the people of Israel in the rest of the Old Testament Scriptures. Here you have an Exodus, God saying, hey, look, if you just obey me, if you just follow me, then you will be my treasured possession, right? We'll come back together, get back in the hot tub, right? And it's just going to be so nice. But you, you look at what happens over the history of the people of Israel, and what you discover is they just can't do it. And they try, and they try, and they fail, and they fail, and they try, and they fail, and they try, and they fail. And so we kind of get this concept that that's what religion is like. I mean, you just try, and you try to get closer to God, and you just keep failing, you keep failing. I mean, why would anybody want to live that way? So in our culture, we have this really, I think, kind of a, a, we don't like this idea of a holy God who's set apart. Now, there are two problems with this pessimistic, negative attitude towards the holiness of God, okay? Here's the first one, and this is, this is key. Here's the first reason why this just doesn't really work. There is always a gap no matter which mountain you climb. There is always a gap no matter which mountain you climb. In other words, holiness, set-apartness, is not simply a religious impulse. It is a human impulse. What I mean by that is that you can see this entire scene as sort of a metaphor for life, for however anybody lives their life. And that is that life just happens to be about constantly failing to live up to various standards whether that happens to be a religious, biblical standard or some other kind of standard, life is always about trying to bridge this gap. Let me give you uh, an example of what I mean. So, uh, about 15 years ago, I was living in Boston, and I was serving as the music director for a church in the heart of Boston, and it was just a couple blocks from the Berklee College of Music. And so I got to know a lot of the students at the Berkeley College of Music. In fact, most of the music team came from, they were students at the Berkeley College of Music. And what was interesting is I just saw the same story over and over again. What you had was you had these kids who, in high school, you know, they lived out in California or Wyoming or Idaho or around the world. They came from all over the place. And they were like the best guitar player in their high school jazz band. I mean, they were just, you know just unbelievable, and, and they were uh, maybe even the best player in their town, and they all come to Berkeley, and all of a sudden, it's like a dime a dozen. Like, all of a sudden, they're just incredibly mediocre because the standard, you see what's going on here? They're trying to climb this mountain, but there's this standard that they just can't measure up to. Um, I remember I was walking through the Berkeley with, with a friend of mine who was going to school there, 
And this, this girl with this huge afro, this really cool afro, was like walking through. And she waved to my friend, and my friend waved back. I'm like, who is that? And he goes, oh, her name's Esperanza Spaulding. He like had a class with her. Uh, okay, if you don't know who Esperanza Spaulding is, about two years after this encounter, she won a Grammy for New Artist of the Year. Uh, she beat Justin Bieber, beat out Justin Bieber for New Artist of the Year, much to the chagrin of many Justin Bieber fans. In fact, I remember uh, watching a video on YouTube of a teenage girl who was just so distraught that Justin Bieber had not won. I mean, like, and, and just, I mean, it was almost like watching, um, you know, Greta Thunberg, except for instead of giving a, a passionate cry about the injustice of the environment, environment problem, it was a, you know, a passionate crying out of the injustice of Justin Bieber not winning the, the <laughs> New Artist of the Year Grammy, right? And, um, I mean, no disrespect to, to Mr. Bieber, but Esperanza Spaulding smokes him. I mean, from a musical standpoint, the, the standard, Justin tries to climb that mountain. I'm sorry, she's the top of Mount Sinai. The glory of Esperanza Spaulding from a musical standpoint just absolutely smokes Mr. Bieber. And so this, this is what happened, right? So these students would come, and they would just realize that this mountain that they thought they were at the top at, no, 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 the standard was much higher. And friends, that's just how life is. I mean, we could use so many different stories. The point is, listen, there is always somebody better than you at whatever it is that you do. There's always a, a parent who doesn't yell at their kids as much as you do. There's always a, a, you know, a husband who thinks, remembers to get flowers more than you do. There's always someone who has a better resume than you. There's always somebody who has a, a better landscape front lawn than you do. There's always somebody who has more Instagram followers than you do. And here's the thing. Even if you do close that gap... Even if you do make it to the top, you spend your whole life trying to make sure that you don't get knocked down. Two weeks ago, the New England Patriots beat the Miami Dolphins 43 to nothing. Most of the time, the quarterback, starting quarterback would come out, but Tom Brady didn't come out because Tom Brady hates coming out of games because he lives with this perpetual fear that the backup is going to come in and outperform him, and he'll lose his job. This is the man who has won six Super Bowls, right? I mean, he is the epitome of NFL glory on the top of the NFL mountain, and he lives in perpetual fear that he's going to be dethroned. He lives in perpetual fear that he's going to be, well, Eli Manning, right? It's the same thing that's going to happen to him that happened to Eli Manning. Sorry, Giants fans. You see, even if you're at the top, there's that fear of getting knocked down. Here's my point. Holiness, set-apartness, is not just a religious concept, a religious impulse. It's a human impulse. There is always somebody who's better at what you're doing. There will always be a gap. Now, of course, there, there are two other kinds of climbers. When we think about somebody trying to climb the mountain, there are two other kinds of climbers. There's the apathetic climber. Right? The apathetic climber is, is the one who says, I don't care. I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm not trying to measure up to anybody's standard, you know. This is the person who kind of celebrates their mediocrity. This is the kind of person that posts on Facebook. I'm into fitness. 
spitting this taco into my mouth. Right? Just celebrating our sort of mediocrity. We're okay with that. But here's the reality. Most of the time when we have that sort of apathetic perspective, it usually reflects somebody who's been burned. It usually reflects somebody who's jaded. It usually reflects somebody who tried to climb that mountain and just got smoked too many times. So they're sort of apathetic about it. That's the apathetic climber. Then there's another kind of climber. There's the self-righteous climber. The self-righteous climber is the person who just kind of creates their own little mountain, right? They kind of set their own little standard, and then they stand up on top of that standard, and they judge everybody else for not measuring up to their little standard. And and they just kind of create it based on what they're good at is really how they end up doing it. What's interesting is this often can happen in religion where in religious circles people will create a little mountain that they stand on and they think it's biblical, right? But really they're just reading the Bible through their own preconceived lens and they're creating their own little mountain, oh, this is what it means to be holy and then they look and they judge everybody else. You look at the ministry of Jesus, he spent most of his time trying to knock the self-righteous people off their own little mountains that they'd created. But here's the thing. Whether you take the apathetic approach or the self-righteous approach, it's all stemming from the same thing. Both the apathetic person and the self-righteous person, if they'll just face reality, the reason why they do this is because they know they really don't measure up. If they actually really did try to climb any of these different mountains that we find in our society, they know deep down inside they really don't measure up. You see, there's always a gap. No matter which mountain that you're climbing, holiness is not just a religious impulse, it's a human impulse. So that's the first problem. I mean, if you're you're the kind of person, I don't like this holy God, you know, this God who's set apart from us. Well, the first problem with that is that even if you run away from that God, you're just going to find yourself having to deal with some other secularized version of holiness. So that's not really going to work. But here's also the second problem with that attitude towards a God of holiness. And here's the key. This isn't the whole story. This isn't the whole story of who God is. What we find here, this story of God in his holiness smoking anybody who comes up the mountain, that's not the whole story. Now, here's the thing. With any other mountain you climb, that is the whole story. In, in our secular society, whatever it is, your, your success in your career, your success in your parenting, your success in your, whatever it is, that is the whole story. There is a standard that you try to climb, you'll never make it. If you ever do, you'll just be waiting for somebody to knock you off. But when we look at the God of the Bible, it's not the whole story. Friends, the heart of the Christian faith is that in the person of Jesus Christ, God himself came because he knew that we could not do this on our own. He knew that we would never measure up. And so God came, and in the person of Jesus Christ, he lived the life, which is the only life that can lead us into the presence of God. He lived the life that we're supposed to live, and he died the death that we all deserve so that we don't have to. That when we put our faith in Christ, his life, his perfect life becomes our own. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God. And listen, that's true no matter what your God is. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God no matter what your God happens to be. But only this God goes on to verse 24, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came in Christ Jesus. The heart of the Christian faith is that through our faith in Christ, by His grace, we are welcomed into the presence of God. Uh, Romans 8, Paul goes through in the book of Romans and he he unpacks uh, what it means to be a follower of God. He unpacks the story of the people of Israel and he demonstrates precisely this. They're brought to Mount Sinai. They're brought to the giving of the law. They're brought to instructions on how to enter back into the presence of God. And then Romans chapter 7 is him really just unpacking how this is impossible. I try to measure up. I try to do what the law says, but I can't do it. And then in chapter 8 says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Therefore, there's no gap. Therefore, there is no gap, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of the sin and death for what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature. Paul's saying, look, the the law, God told the Israelites what to do and so now they know how to get back into the presence of God but it didn't actually help things. Because our sinfulness was bad enough, it's like, well, now I know what to do, so I really ought to do it, but now I don't do it even though I know what it is. It's like, it's like worse than if I didn't know. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. You see, here's here's what the gospel points us to, is that now we're called to climb the mountain. We're called to climb the mountain to, 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 to try to live in accordance with God's commands. But here's the thing, we're no longer climbing the mountain to get into the presence of God. We're climbing the mountain because the presence of God is already in us. We're now empowered and enabled when we tap into that by the power of His grace. We're empowered now to begin to change and to begin to live a life that is different, but not so that we can get into the presence of God, but because through faith we already are. How many of us here are tired? How many of us here are tired of climbing? How many of us here are tired of trying to climb whatever mountain it is that you think is going to get you to that place of glory? Friends, come to the cross. Bring that to the cross and find that you can just enter into God's presence on the basis of His grace. We now come to our time of communion. Ushers, if you will come forward, come on up, and musicians, if you can come up and and begin to play. Go ahead and come on up, guys.
communion is an opportunity for us on the basis of faith to enter into his presence. What we have here in the elements is symbolic. It's representative of what God has done for us in Christ. That God has come for us. He has died to forgive us of our inability to measure up so that we can enter into the presence of God. I encourage you to partake of this knowing that you can now be in God's presence. Maybe for you this is the first time. Maybe for the first time in your life you've come to really realize what the gospel is all about. Maybe you've even been in church. Maybe you've considered yourself a religious person. But now for the first time you actually know what it means to be a Christian. I invite you to partake of these elements. Will you pray with me? Dear God, we come before you this morning and we praise you for your grace. We praise you that you are a God who loves us so much. You are a God who longs to be in our presence. And you are a God who longs to shape us into the people you called us to be. God, I pray that this morning we would lay down our own attempts, our own efforts to achieve glory. God, instead to be empowered by your spirit to live in freedom. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.